I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, you're very welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Maurice O'Keefe. This week, it's memories of the old library in Trinity College. In 2012, I was working on an oral history collection with members of the college community. And while I was doing that project, I was fascinated by the the long room or the old library on campus there. So I visited the library and met Anne-Marie Tiffany. She was the visitor service manager since 1992. 1992, I remember we had um, a basketball team from Russia and that was considered the height of, it was so exotic. It was so different. I also met Bill Kennedy. He was the library guard since 1999. When I used to turn the page, I'd write out the Latin. It is more or less all written in one continuous line. Words join together and it's hard to figure them out. But we start with Veronica Morrow, who entered Trinity College in 1954 as a student and later returned in 1961 and was appointed to permanent staff member with the library. Library work, was that something that you felt you would enjoy or get into? No, no, I'd never given it a thought. Okay, so this Um, was... But I had loved my time in Trinity, and I had always considered it such a privilege to be in Trinity Library. And um, when I came for my interview, um, it seemed much more interesting than I had expected. I had expected it as sort of creepy old people lurking behind shelves or in cupboards or something like that. And uh, I was shown round and I thought, gracious, this is a revelation. This is lovely. I, I wouldn't mind this. Also, the holidays are very good and that'll give me plenty of time to go back to France if I want to. It was only a temporary job. And I was, it was... There were two of that particular post, and it was called, I don't know what it was called, some kind of an assistant, and we were paid out of something called the Arrears of Work Fund. We always had Arrears of Work. And we were paid by the week, which was, no, we weren't, no, that's wrong, that's wrong. We weren't paid by the week, we were paid by the month. Um, But it was a month-by-month arrangement. And we were paid so little that I was on the agricultural rate, which was too low to pay any tax. (laughs) So, you know, you'd know it couldn't go on for too long. But then, towards the end of the year, I started in September 1960, um, towards the end of that academic year, which would have been around about June the next year, I suppose, uh, a job on the permanent staff became vacant. 
and I applied for it and got it. And then I did that for a couple of years, and then I thought, really, I had become very interested in library work. But I didn't want to be tied to Trinity. And I knew that to get any further anyway, I would need to have a professional library qualification. So I thought about that. And in those days, there weren't nearly as many library schools. The one in Belfast, in Queens, mm-hmm. I think hadn't, hadn't started in those days. The one in UCD gave a qualification which wasn't recognised outside of Ireland. And I wanted um, the knowledge that I could move uh, wherever I wanted. You know, I didn't know if I was going to want to or not, but I wanted uh, at least to be sure I could. And... I applied to the University of London because they were offering a postgraduate diploma in librarianship, Mm -hmm. which was recognised. And furthermore, because it was an academic diploma in a university, I was able to get leave of absence from Trinity, which went on paying my salary. But out of my salary, a replacement was paid for me at, at the lower level. So I had enough to get by on in London. What were the challenges that you were met with? It was quite an exciting time because shortly before I went to London, um, plans were already well underway for the building of the Berkeley Library. Um, When I came into Trinity Library first in 1960, the competition had been launched for the design, the international design, architectural design, for the, what was then known as the, the new library, but it became known then as the Berkeley Library. Yeah. And I remember helping to lay out all the, um, the drawings submitted by the different architects in this room, in the long room of the library. <clears throat> I can't remember when that was, um, 61 or 62. Um, and I remember the announcement of the winner of the competition And then I remember Dev coming to turn the first sod uh, of this Barclay Library. And then in 1967, when the building was finished, he came and declared it open. So I remember that as well, because I was back by that time. Okay, so there must have been great excitement here in Trinity. Yeah, the Barclay Library hadn't been built. Because when I came in, you see, the buildings were were quite different. Um, The work all took place in this building. And where was the library before the Berkeley Library? Here. So it, all all the books were stored here. All uh, you know the virtually all yes yes most yes they were nearly. I mean the manuscripts were in a little building, in what is now yes. called Fellows Square. That building is no more on the Trinity site. It has gone to the UCD campus, and it's a pretty little Greek temple beside the lake in UCD. It was designed and built first as a magnetic observatory. Yes. And uh, so the manuscripts were housed there, and the manuscripts readers had to go over to that little building. And the manuscripts, yes, they were stored there. And I also remembered looking out through uh, the window of my office, which was on the ground floor of this building, uh, across at Fellows Square, where only the Fellows could could go in those days. They would have a key, and they could enter it. And uh, the manuscripts readers were allowed in a special privilege. And it wasn't known as Fellows Square, it was known as Fellows Garden. And there were apple trees in it. And um, only the fellows could eat those apples. (laughs) 
And <clears throat> I remember when we were students, now this is going back even further, um, one of our pals who worked uh, had, well, I won't say too much, but what, had some yeah. connection with the library, he used to collect the apples for us, and we used to eat fellows' apples secretly, and they were yeah. utterly disgusting. I see. Mm. So, But I also remember looking out through the window when I was on the staff and seeing people coming in from the Met office because um, I can't remember what the things were called. They looked a little bit like beehives, but they were used for measuring rainfall. And this was one mm. of the sites where people from the, from the, Met, the Met office would come in and check the readings from time to time. They've gone now. Right. Presumably they have other ways of checking the the readings of the rainfall. Right, but the library was thrown from pillar to post. Uh, yeah, well, you address, see, yes, and outside readers had to read in this room. They weren't allowed anywhere else, and indeed there wasn't room. Uh, we, as undergraduates, had to do all our reading, no matter what subject we were doing, medicine, French, hmm. history, you name it, in the building which is beside this building. It's now known as the 1937 reading room. Yes. You know, the little low I do, building. Below, That's yes. right. And that was the reading room, the, the only reading room. And um, we only came into this room to consult exam papers because they used to be kept on long tables along there. And outside readers would have to read here. And they were brought the books. And we would come here to read, um, as I say, to read, to check up on the exam papers when it came near exam time. And Veronica recalls here the number of students studying in Trinity College increased drastically. But I do know that when I came back in 1960 to join the staff, September 1960, everybody was saying, the numbers are huge, the numbers are huge, it's the bulge. There was a post-war increase in population, and 1960... That was hitting the universities, and that made a big difference, and that was the first big influx, I think. Mm -hmm. um, now, it might have happened in 59, but it had, it had happened, but it, it hadn't happened when I left in 58. It had happened when I joined so, the staff in 1960. But, uh, and, of course, since yeah. then, it just went on increasing. And another big change, of course, was the ban, when the ban was lifted. Going back to, uh, to the books again, did you have to swear an oath of allegiance? Not an oath of allegiance, no. Um, and this, again, was yes. nothing to do with library staff. It was to do with using the library and every user of the library, staff or students, mm. had to take what was known as the library declaration. I think as numbers increased and as the whole situation changed, um, th that ceased over the years. But even now, people coming to register are shown what, what the declaration is and what they are undertaking. Like, I promise not to deface the books, I promise not to do all these things. Yes. And in our, in our time, in my time as an undergraduate, and staff would have done this too, but possibly individually. We queued yes. as we did our registration process as undergraduates. We queued up the main stairs of this building, outside the librarian's office. And the librarian, as I said, was a very senior academic, the vice provost, Dr. Park. And he stood there and he took us in in batches of 
maybe seven, whatever he could line up easily. And um, he would, I think, read off the first line, and we all then followed up to a point. And then when it got to a bit where there was a gap, we said our own name, like Ego or I, Veronica Morrow or whatever. Yes. And we promised to do all these things, and then we signed the declaration, and that was filed. And those would all, would all exist. And certainly in some form or another, yes, that yes. continued until very, very, very recently. I'm not quite sure what happens now. But just people, users of the library, yeah. are made aware of their responsibilities, and that's what that was about. But coming back here as, as a, a staff member, I mean, did, did you feel then that, you know, this was a... Quite a responsible job to have. I mean, you were now at the other side, if you like. Yeah, yeah I suppose I did. I, I think that's something that, that kind of came upon me gradually. Mm -hmm. And again, more so perhaps when I qualified as a librarian and I could say, I am a librarian now, and I came back. I was possibly slightly more conscious of it then. Right. But it, it was a gradual thing. But mm -hmm. it was, I mean, always was a, a great privilege and even now, when I walk into the long room, I kind of I take a breath and I think, this is just fabulous. But it has never palled. But when you look down the long room here and, and you see the wonderful atmosphere, also the books, I mean, this was um, a lovely place to work in, to be your workplace. To yes, yes, it was. Oh, yes, it was. Um, my first office here was at the bottom of this stairs in what is now the manuscript, well, part of, part of the manuscript department, um, it, was, it was one large room subdivided. Part of it was the deputy librarian's office. He was the full-time working senior member of staff. And the other half was occupied by um, his secretary and me. And my job was to register all the periodicals and newspapers the new issues as they came in. That was my first job. And also to be there, um, because that was really the only place that members of the public had access. And you get goodness knows who coming in. But um, um, quite often important visitors to the college would be brought across. Now, they might be brought straight up to the librarian's office, but sometimes people came in, kind of quite important people, unannounced. And you'd look at them and you'd recognise them. Um, sometimes visiting academics would come in. Now, rarely people came in on their own mm -hmm. at that level. Uh, unless, very, very, very rarely um, it, um, sort of VIPs would come on their own. Usually somebody from the provost's office would bring them or somebody else would just... Yes check with the librarian or the deputy and then they would be brought through but we would we would be there okay um because you couldn't just get into the rest of the library you know without but, somebody to be there and that was the only telephone yes really yeah in in yes. that room there was an extension that went from that room upstairs to where the books were catalogued which is one two floors up from here and marie tiffany was appointed Visitor Services Manager in 1992. And she recalls here what it was like in the early days. Visitor Services area there had really been, um, uh, they were open um, Mondays to Fridays and a half day on Saturdays. 
closed on Sundays, closed on bank holidays, closed at Easter. And really it was a shop and then everybody just queued up, paid their money in to see the Book of Kells and there was one or two library guards. So it was it was very much, um, you know, uh, it wasn't really developed, I suppose. So they had got money uh, from the European Union and had built this new visitor centre, which is the, the colonnades. So it meant they had a new shop, new exhibition area, a new home for the Book of Kells. So when I arrived, um, actually the funny thing is when I arrived in, in Trinity, they didn't even have a desk for me. And I spent the first six months camping out on other people's desks um, until eventually I was um, placed on the balcony upstairs in the long room opposite where Charles Benson would be. Uh, on the understanding I would be there for six months. Fifteen years later, I was still there. But as um, somebody said, that's a nanosecond in the history of Trinity. You know, 15 years is nothing. So there were Obviously, there was a driving force to get the, the new visitor centre. But when I was there, you know, I wasn't aware of that, if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. I was after that. But <coughs> it was very exciting, you know, and it was... Um, I was kind of... When I knew I was going to have to speak to you, I was thinking, you know, what were the changes? And... We now have our leaflet in Russian. And we go through about five, 6,000 leaflets in Russian every year. And in 1992, I remember we had um, a basketball team from Russia. And that was considered the height of... It was so exotic. It was so different. And these people came over um, through the sports council. And we were rung up and asked, would we, you know, would somebody bring them around? And, you know, they had no money. And, would, would you know, could we just, just you know, bring them sure, in for free? Nice. I said, absolutely no problem. And I'd bring them around. And uh, I'd always have fascination for things Russian, so I had the odd word of Russian that I was able to say to them. But they they had uh, somebody bringing them around and translating for them. But um, I always remembered that um, they had gifts for everybody that they were meeting, and mm. I I thought, isn't this so strange? The, one of the, at that stage they were a very poor country, mm. and here they were giving us gifts. And you know you have people from all over the world from very wealthy countries who would never even think of anything like that. You know, so there was you were kind of thinking of those things were was was quite um, was different, um, and you know the language the leaflets I had uh, were English, Irish, German, French, Italian, Spanish. That was it, but I've added to it. We've added Japanese, we've added Dutch, we've added Russian, we've added Chinese, wow. Chinese in two two different dialects. Um, you know, because visitors have become a lot more exotic. It used to be it was sort of I would call it old Europe. It was kind of, uh, you know, the big four. And, you know, odd time you'd have people from Holland and you'd have people from Scandinavia. And, of course, you'd have British visitors and you'd have visitors from the US. Um, it's changed quite a bit. Our visitors from Britain have, have shrunk quite amazingly. But our visitors from the States are still, you know, still quite good. Well, you know, for instance, we, we had um, uh, we had Queen Elizabeth uh, at the second and her husband visited this year. And that was a very historic visit. And they had been, for the last 18 months, um, kind of coming in and doing a recce and looking around. And you kind of knew, but nobody would say anything, why they were in. And it was quite interesting. And then eventually we were, it was confirmed that we were part of the, the itinerary for, for her visit. And um, despite having done loads of visits before, this was completely different. And there was a lot of people involved in the college and um, it was very exciting. It's also quite stressful because, you know, it was an unknown quantity. We had no idea how the visit was going to go. And I don't mean just in Trinity, but I mean in the whole, the whole of Ireland. And there was this kind of an intake of breath when she left. Well, nothing happened on our patch, you know, you know, which I suppose 
wasn't very good, but um, it was one of those unknown ones. And then at the end, the visit was just an absolutely fantastic success. Yes. And the, particularly the cork end, I thought it was just fantastic. So I would be doing something like that. But then I could be doing something like, um, uh, for instance, uh, you know, picking things up off the floor. So no days. I'm in the, the, the long room, uh, the library, the old library. And I'm talking to a man, I suppose, who'd be, you've been working here, Bill Kennedy, for how many years? Well, I retired two years ago, but I worked from 99 till about 2008. And so where were you before that? Secondary teacher. And where were you secondary? In Clondalkin. For how many years did I, were you? Oh, in best part of 30. Were you? Mm-hmm. And what county man are you? Oh, I'm from Tralee originally. But uh, I'm gone quite a long time. The, the job here in Trinity, when it, came, it was advertised, uh, how did, did you come in and have an interview? Or how, how did it come about? My daughter was working in the shop. Here in Trinity? Here in Trinity. She was studying. And um, she came home one day and said, Look, Dad, they're looking for a library guard inside in Trinity. Should suit you down to the ground because of the Book of Kells, your degree in archaeology, etc. Why not go in? So I called in one day, met Anne Maria, had a little interview with Mr. Adams, and that afternoon she rang me, Would you like to start next Saturday? And that was back in 1999. You were working in the same building as the Book of Kells. Now, this, this, I, I'm sure this for you was a dream like mm. come true. Mm. Did you go in and turn the page each day? or No. Or did you manage it at all? Well, first I'm not allowed to touch it. That's up to manuscript department, Dr. Meehan and his staff. They don't turn the page a day. I don't believe they ever did. They turn the page beneath once every three or four months. Mm. You see? Did you study the the Kells book yourself? I mean, did you, did you translate or did you... Because you could understand what was written into... Well, I, when I used to turn the page, I'd trans write out the Latin. It is more or less all written in one continuous line. Words joined together and it's hard to figure them out. But eventually I got the knack of it. Split the words and then write it out. Sometimes I put English over it. Tourists liked it sometimes. They like to see what, what the page meant. And I got a kick out of it because I could read something that was written in Latin in the 9th century in majesty writing. Yeah. Oh, it's great. So you were able to look into the, the, the actual meaning of the text. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not a Latin scholar, but I'm told there are, there are lots of mistakes grammatically-wise, in the Book of Kells. Also, they, they had a preference for Old Latin, as distinct from Jerome's Latin. And as far as I can make out, Old Latin would be more North African tradition in monasticism. And actually, that's where monasticism began anyway, in Egypt, and moved west. So not surprisingly, they brought some of these traditions, influences, with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And did you find that, um, I mean, at this stage, the tourists now were coming in and, and looking at, at the book each day. So you wouldn't assist them and, and, and um, tell them the story or anything, would you? Well, first of all, it could be crowded. There could be a queue from here out to Nassau Street. There could be a queue inside in the Book of Kells, hogging that book, all trying to see it, not a move. It could be stressful in that sense. You couldn't order them. You couldn't direct them. You couldn't tell them to move. They pay their money. They're entitled to see. So it's only occasionally you get talking to somebody and they'd ask a question, you'd answer, one thing might lead to another, you know? Yeah. Was it a boring job? I didn't find it so. You see... You're left a lot on your own in the sense that if you're, we say, up here in the library, nobody in here, and there's only you. Well, you're only pacing up and down, up and down, and unless your head has something to think of, it can be boring. So what would go through your mind all day now? Composing a bit of poetry, maybe trying to figure out something in Latin from the Book of Kells. Well, that's where we come to an end with the Trinity College old library memories and now we switch to something totally different in this segment you will hear memories from mike neary mike who immigrated to england in the 1960s i met him at a haymaking festival in trim last year i'm talking to mike neary that's him where are you from mike ratmaline uh County Meath as such, you know. But where I originally left was County Mio, a place called Sheon. For the that's an Irish word or not, I don't know. And I left there in 19, uh, 1966. We come here to Meath. What brought you here? Well, my parents was coming and I was in England for, oh, ten years before that. Working on the buildings? No, in the headings, under the ground. Twelve-hour shifts, one break at dinner time. There was no ten o'clock break that time, or no three o'clock. So there was one half-hour for the dinner, and you had seven days a week, seven twelve-hour shifts, and every Friday the choir fella tell you, any man that don't come in Saturday or Sunday, don't come in Monday. And every Monday morning, there'd be 40 men at the top of the hole looking for work. So you and you, when you went down the hole, you had to shift the muck. It was an old saying there, it was the man of the muck. Where was this again? That, that was, it was in, uh, out in Phillips Park Cemetery in Manchester in the year of 1963. I went to England and... We were Friday night, went to Manchester, into the pub the next Sunday with the boys, and I never forget it. I drank 10 or 12 pints a mild. It was Techley's Mild at him in Antisbear in Manchester. There won't be too many men now left to know about that. But anyway, uh, came out, and the next morning, this big wagon, sure, we were surprised, pulled up, 
and about 20 lads jumped on the back of the wagon, no cover, no nothing, all standing up at the end of them, shouting at the women, some of the long-distance boys, you know, and down the street, landed to the work anyway. But the point I'm getting to, the first week when the payment came, I couldn't believe it. In place of getting £3.10 for my week, I got £22. And I thought I had won the lotto. <laughs> that is oh, a yeah. fact. I know. And, and you know. I, it was great, but you have worked hard. Oh, yeah, the work was savage, like, you know. But at the same time, you were paid for it. Yeah. But I seen. Oh, was it an Irish community? No, no, no. No, no, no. Every fellow there was kind on his own. You'd have to be now in London and the streets, the houses, yeah. for to get into that. Okay. There was, there was not, no one, not up in Manchester. No, uh, no one. In them times, there was very little work like that. Uh, it's in the later years the Irish started to get the community things going. And uh, what did you do so to uh, orienteer? To to kind of find your way around on your own. Oh yeah, you'd be always yes, but then do, do you, you go, you get digs then for the call digs, and uh, the landlady there, the first thing she'd ask you, you see, when you'd get the digs uh, at the first evening again, were you a Catholic or do you skate mate on Friday? And of course, that time, none of the Irish fellas had ate mate on Friday. This is the time telling no lie now. There's plenty of men yet to prove this. I have a brother or two in Avon that was at the same game. But anyway, there was one landlady and wasn't she little? You get a, a, one slice of bread and toast in the morning with about 20 beans on it. And that was that. And your mugger and you go ahead in and the work, you know, was unreal. But who were Friday morning, wasn't she a notorious... I won't finish it off. Uh, wasn't she notorious when she'd have two rashers and a knee and a sausage in the plate when she knew you wouldn't eat it? And that is as true as they never get off this chair. Oh, and yeah. I was. I mean, that was unfair. Oh, yeah, but that was her, wasn't she? A black oh. prod. <laughs> And she disliked uh, the Irish. Oh, don't uh, you know? And you'd see in an odd jewel thing, you'd go to it looking for the days, no Irish uh, reply or call here. Like, you know? Yeah. Oh, man, that time it was different to now, like, you know, the English boys, like, you know. And no matter how long your fellas that would be working with your Englishmen, you might be there six months, some of them, and he'd always still call you Pat. He'd know your name well, John, Mick, Tom or Joe, but he'd always say, OK, Pat. Every man in the Irish was Pat. And that one, that's... Uh, oh, it was. And I mean, there was uh, That is the truth. What about your spare time, if you had any? There was no what, spare what time. What did you do? Well, if you had any spare time at night when you come in, then as we got a bit better, we used to get a room. You'd take a room and you'd have enough to eat because you go to the butcher, you see, and you'd buy what you wanted yourself, and by the time you'd have that cooked in the evening, it'd be 7 o'clock in the evening when you come in, and by the time you'd have all that cooked in it and washed up, it'd be near 9 o'clock. So <laughs> you next place was the bed, and at 5 o'clock in the morning, you had to be standing on the floor again. Do you see? I do, yes. Yeah, so that yeah. was as simple as that. And if you missed one shift there... 
the rule was with them boys, don't come in the next day. Yeah. I seen men being sacked, that as true as I have that pipe in my hand, at 10 o'clock in the morning, and at 1 o'clock, and at 5 o'clock in the evening, any man that wasn't fit to do the thing, when we used to be on the dig, the younger man had come out in the morning, and he had a lump of pegs with him, and every 11 years, he'd stick a peg. And you started there, he started 11 years down there, was all marked along the thing. It was three foot deep, 18 inches wide in the top, and nine inches in the bottom. And if you got good digging, you had to have that dug at one o'clock. You were starting at seven. Oh and any man that hadn't had done at one o'clock, it was goodbye to him. Really? Because the next morning, there were plenty of the you see people here, all men and hairy chests and the men and opened up men. As the fella said, the bulk was up the hill. The Lord save us, horses him in, mad to get in, like, you know. And one day, I, as it happened, I was a very, very good at the dig, and I could do it and used to have it. And at the time, you'd be very strong, half-staffed, you know. Muhammad Ali wouldn't be as well trained as we were. We've come to the end of this week's podcast and all the interviews you've been listening to are available on our website, that's irishlifeandlore.com. I'm Maurice O'Keefe and I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.